the most repeated command through Scripture, you may know, is do not fear. Do not be afraid. This is really reassuring. It is a good command. But its frequency, I think in part, even highlights something that we know, which is that we are immensely crippled by fear. Fear is woven into the fabric of our lives that in every single facet of our life, we could look and see fear creep in. We can be crippled by the anxieties of our life. We see this exemplified on all sides. Uh, You can see this in the way even churches responded to the pandemic. And this isn't a political statement. Uh, But you can see on both sides of the spectrum, uh, one side saying, you know, we need to be Uh, worried about government overreach, and then the other side saying, we need to be worried about this virus. And on both sides, they're yelling at each other, saying, stop being so scared. Stop being so afraid of government overreach. Stop being so afraid of a little virus. And there's just yelling at each other. And I wonder, is that the solution to fighting fear? Is that what we should do? Should we just yell at each other and say, stop being so afraid? Because we can think of all sorts of bad advice when we're afraid, that we wouldn't want to receive, right? Maybe some, just, ah, don't be so scared. What's, what's there to worry about? Don't be a chicken. Don't be a scaredy cat. Right? Every once in a while, we need a good push. But normally, that's bad advice. If someone comes to you afraid, don't tell them to just man up. But also, we can have bad responses to fear, You think of maybe natural responses, things that come naturally to us, uh, very similar to even uh, different types of animals. You see the way that they respond to fear, this sort of fight, flight, or freeze, right? You corner some animals, they're coming at you. And so in a big part, that's how we respond when we're afraid. We we respond in anger because of our fear. Others uh, respond by playing dead, freeze, just... Uh, when we're afraid, we freeze, and we, we become paralyzed by our fear. And this can even have comedic effects uh, in animals. We, if you need some Sunday afternoon entertainment on this Lord's Day, you can look up uh, fainting goats. There's something about these goats that when they get startled and they get afraid, all the muscles in their body lock up, and they just fall over. Uh, if, have you seen fainting goats? Okay. You know what I'm talking about. But our bodies respond in strange ways that are even, they feel like they're out of our control when we're afraid. And we may not literally freeze up and faint like a goat, uh, but we have bad responses. So there's bad advice when we're afraid. There's bad responses. But as we look to Psalm 27 this morning, a psalm of David, we see David paint a picture of his circumstances, and they are fearful. He talks about evildoers assailing him, wanting to devour him, adversaries and foes who want him to stumble, an army encamped around him. War is imminent. He talks about the feeling of uh, his family betraying him or abandoning him. He talks about 
adversaries being false witnesses, spreading lies about him. These are terrifying prospects for us as we think about it. The circumstances are bad. And so if we heard that, we might think Psalm 27 is probably one of those, you know, utter lament, cry for help type psalms. But if you, like me, read through Psalm 27, you hear those circumstances, you're surprised to see that Psalm 27 is actually a psalm of confidence. It is full of confidence. In verse 1, we see right away uh, two big, bold statements that David says. He says, Whom shall I fear, and of whom shall I be afraid? When I read those statements, I want to answer David. I want to say, Oh, whom shall you fear? Maybe the army that's surrounding you, right? That, that's who you should fear. And so as we read Psalm 27, we get to a bit of a crossroads where we have to answer a question as we look at the circumstances of David's fear, the fear-inducing circumstances of his life, and his response and confidence. David is either a fool or he's full of faith. He's either a fool or he's full of faith. He's either ignorant and blind to the circumstances of his life or he's on to something really important. And so I want you to answer that question for yourself. As we work through Psalm 27 this morning, is David a fool or is he full of faith? Let's hear what Holy Scripture says. Psalm 27 of David. Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yahweh is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of Yahweh, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of Yahweh and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in, the shel in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to Yahweh. Hear, O Yahweh, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Yahweh, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but Yahweh will take me in. Teach me your way, O Yahweh, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. But I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of Yahweh in the land of the living. Wait for Yahweh be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for Yahweh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
So the first way that David fights fear is through faith. The first way that David fights fear is through faith. Again, we've already touched on the circumstances of David's predicament, but the language is heavy in verses 2 and 3 about what he is facing. And I can read these words and acknowledge the implications of what he might be talking about, but I can't experientially understand what war is like. I'd imagine most of us in the room don't really know what war feels like. When we think of war, we are tempted to go the route of thinking of this, if this army is coming against us, maybe they're an army who has uh, Nerf guns and foam swords, not real weapons. Right? Or maybe we think of being surrounded on all sides, having uh, those who are going to come and assail us, and we think of maybe a hard level or mission in Call of Duty where we're, we're surrounded on all sides, but if things go bad, we can always just respawn and, and have another kick at the can. Well, that's not the nature of war. We know that. And that's not the nature of David's circumstances. And there's many people in the world who know these realities all too well. Even in the last few years, we can, we can think of Afghanis who, when the Taliban took control, they're, they're sitting there waiting for what's going to happen. As they get word of uh, the Taliban getting closer and closer to their village. Or maybe we think of Ukrainians hunkered down in, in their city. They, they, where are they going to go? They're, they're hunkered down even maybe right in their apartments. And they can hear and see the signs of war getting closer and closer to their door. And we are tempted to think that if we just said to them, just have faith, that that would be really bad advice. And it would be bad advice if we think of faith in the way we so often do. We often think of faith, I don't know if, if you're like this, I'm like this, I think of faith as wishful thinking, just kind of hoping for the best. But when circumstances are bleak, we don't need to just hope for the best. That's, that's absolutely powerless. That's roots that aren't planted in anything. And so what we're not talking about here, when I say that, that David fights fear through faith, we're not talking about wishful thinking. David's faith and his confidence is grounded somewhere. Those roots are planted deep. And where are those roots? We see that in verse 1. Describes God in three different ways. He says, Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yahweh is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Those are three ways. Light, salvation, and stronghold. So let's take each of those in turn. Light first. What does it mean for God to be our light? Well, Calvin said, I think nighttime is dark so that you can imagine your fears with less distraction. I think nighttime is dark so you can imagine your fears with less distraction. Normally the Calvin I quote is the French reformer. This is Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes. I think nighttime is dark so you can imagine your fears with less distraction. Just because he's not a theologian makes it no less profound. Fear lives in the dark. That's the reality of the monsters that we think live under our bed. They live in the dark. But light has a powerful effect when we think of the fears that linger in the dark. Right? The power of that light switch has the power to extinguish the fears and anxieties that threaten to cripple us. 
And so when David describes God as his light, there's a lot of meaning that's built up to the imagery of light. But I don't think it's less than that, of light that can extinguish the darkness. Darkness cannot overcome the light. And so God is David's light. Next, his salvation. God is a saving God. It's in his very nature. And so David's confidence is rooted in God being his salvation. That's why he can be confident. That's why he can say, whom shall I fear? Because God is a saving God. I know that sounds like old hat. We get used to that talking in the church. That Oh yeah, God, my salvation. That is a, an amazing hope. If you were stuck in your house and war was raging on the outside and getting closer and closer to your door, if you knew you had sure salvation, man, that's some serious hope. That's not wishful thinking. That's real hope. And that's the same confidence and hope that we have today. We find salvation being saved in Christ alone. That the sin that threatens to destroy us has been paid in full by Christ. And so the reality of Jesus had yet to be literally fleshed out for David. He was still waiting for a promise of a Messiah to come. But he's trusting in the same God as his Savior as we trust in today. So God, our light, God, our salvation, and finally, God, our stronghold. Again, we don't have to think often of the need for a stronghold in our lives. Of course, living in a fallen world, there will always be brokenness, there will always be threats, and there will always be danger. But for the most part, most of us in this room have a pretty safe life. We don't need a stronghold, right? We can just lock our doors. A stronghold just gives this, it's talking about a refuge. It's like a stone walls, 10 feet thick. This is an impenetrable place of solace and safety. And so there's a lot of imagery built up in this stronghold nature that is not just wishful thinking. There's a real trust there. I stumbled upon an old picture that you may have seen before. I think it was from 1928, and it's a picture of uh, the original designers of the bulletproof vest. And they the picture is, is what makes it so interesting is they're just standing there in a field shooting each other with real guns. And they've got their bulletproof vest on and it's sort of their proof of concept and they're selling it to this police department and all the police officers are in the background kind of just watching what's going on and they're just, the two designers and salesmen are just shooting each other. And it's a, it's a bizarre picture. You can, that's another thing you can add to your afternoon's entertainment. But what's interesting, if we look at that scene back in 1928, we would call those guys morons if they had designed this thing. Hey, what if we made a vest that could stop us from dying if we got shot? Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Okay, and then let's, let's put together like a design. Okay, I bet that'll stop a bullet. And then they put their final stitch into the product, throw it on, go out and shoot each other. We would say those guys are fools. Now, they're not fools because they tested that vest many, 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 many times. They were absolutely certain that a bullet was not going to go through that vest before, of course, they put it on themselves and said, shoot me, right? Their hope, their confidence is built on 100% certainty. Their confidence was built on 
what they knew about the safety of this protective device. This is the, the thought. When David talks about God being his stronghold, it's not that this is some untested stronghold and they're still working on proof of concept. He is saying, that, God, you are my stronghold. The armies may be around me, but there's absolutely no way that they can get in. And so it's through these different characteristics of God, the truth that David knows about God being his light, the light that can extinguish fear, about being his salvation, a God whose just very nature is to save his people, and his stronghold, who actually offers real protection, that is what his faith is built on. That is how David fights fear with faith. And so something for us to consider, maybe this is better advice than the entertainment choices I've told you to do for this afternoon, is we need to read our Bibles more. We need to know God's word, not as some ritualistic religious activity, but to know God as our light, as our salvation, and as our stronghold. As we know God, our faith becomes less about wishful thinking, but more about confidence in a God who can actually save Fight fear with faith. David doesn't stop there, though. We see in the next few verses that he fights fear through worship. Fight fear through worship. How often do you worship? In a given week, how often do you worship? The way we answer that question likely tells us a lot about what we think worship is. If we say we worship once a week for 90 minutes on a Sunday, well, that obviously explains what we think worship is. Maybe we can take it even narrower and we say, well, it's not actually for 90 minutes, it's just for the times when we're singing together. Now, absolutely, certainly, singing is a, a way that we worship. But worship is so much more. It's not less than singing, but it's more than singing. Look at verses 4 to 6. One thing I have asked of Yahweh that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of Yahweh and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices and shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to Yahweh. So we even see right at the end that, that for sure, singing is part of how we worship. God's people have always been a singing people. And as I did last week, I'll exhort you again. If you add a few decibels to your congregational singing, I am confident that you will be encouraged. And I am even more confident that the person next to you will be encouraged. But we see that there is more to worship than singing. It's seeking God. That's what David says. He says, this is the one thing I'm going to pursue. This is my chief end. My chief aim is to seek God and to dwell with him, to be in fellowship with him. All of life is worship. All of life is worship. That's not even just an ideal of something we need to strive for as Christians. I know I've thought about that a lot as, as a Christian growing up thinking, man, I'm just a bad worshiper. All of my life is not worship. 
Man, let me tell you, you are an exceptional worshiper. You are, that's, it's all you do. All you do is worship. But because of sin, we just get really bad aim. We are really good at worshiping. You think of the things that you devote your time, your attention, your energy, your money. What do you give worth? That's what we worship. And so we are all really good at worshiping. We just have really bad aim. And as we look at the fears that threaten to cripple us, the fears that threaten to crush us, that is a really good diagnostic tool for figuring out what you worship. If you ask the question, what's the one thing that if it got taken away would ruin me or crush me, well, you're worshiping that thing. And so if you look at your anxieties, your fears, your discouragements, your stresses, all these things, uh, they're real. We, it, it's not a sin to be afraid. But if you look at the things that make you afraid, you can see pretty quickly the things that you're tempted to put all your hope in, the things that you really, truly are seeking after. And so David here fights fear with worship. He wants to seek after God. He wants to behold God in all of his beauty, in all of his glory. And by doing so, it has this trumping effect that just overpowers the other things that we worship. We need, as worshiping creatures, God created us to worship. As worshiping people, we need to behold a greater glory than the idols that we're so tempted to devote our time and our attention and our money and our resources and our emotions to. We need to seek God in worship. We need to behold this greater glory, and we'll see that our idols start to lose their grip on our lives, start to lose their controlling effect on us. And we see that as, as David does this, as he fights fear through worship, we see that worship is both the end and the means. So he's already talked about God being his light, his salvation, and his stronghold. And so that triggers David to declare the one thing. What is the one thing that David wants to do? He says that he will seek after God, that he might dwell in his house forever. And that triggers David then to declare God's saving work. For, in verse 5, he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And as he considers God's saving work there in verse 5, that causes him to then again respond in worship. It's cyclical. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices and shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to Yahweh. This is the, how worship is both the end and the means. It's how worship is, is how we fight fear. We need to behold a greater glory. David seeks God in worship. And then we see in verses 7 through 12 that, that David also seeks God in prayer, that we can fight fear through prayer. Verse 7 Hear, O Yahweh, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Yahweh, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast 
me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and mother have forsaken me, but Yahweh will take me in. Teach me your way, O Yahweh, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. There are a lot of lessons in this prayer that David prays that shows us how we can fight fear through prayer. First, David just demonstrates that he needs God. He needs God. This is what prayer absolutely declares. When we go to God in prayer, we are declaring, I can't do this on my own. And when we fail to pray, we we fall for the lie of self-sufficiency, that we can do it all on our own. And so David models well. He, He cries aloud in desperation. The circumstances are bleak. It's not that just because he has confidence, he's not just happy clappy through this whole thing, right? He's he's crying out to God in desperation. And that is at the heart of prayer that we cry out to God. He makes bold declarations that God won't abandon him. We have no evidence in the Bible that David's father and mother actually ever abandoned him, and some of your translations may read it more as a hypothetical situation, something like, even if my father and mother abandon me, God, you will take me in. This is a bold declaration that God will not abandon David. This is part of his his prayer and he's not being demanding of God. He's, he's calling on God to do what God has promised to do. And then he prays to be led in verse 11. Teach me your way, O Yahweh, and lead me on a level path. We don't love being led normally. We like the thought of individualism, of autonomy, of independence. But the Bible teaches us consistently that we need a shepherd. As we look at this uh, prayer that David prays in Psalm 27 about God leading him, it, it, it triggers our minds to think back just a few psalms earlier in Psalm 23, beloved psalm, psalm that many of us know even by heart. But it talks about the Lord being David's shepherd. That because of that, he shall not want He makes him lie down in green pastures. He leads him beside still waters. He restores his soul, and he leads him in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. For even though David walks through the valley of the shadow of death, he will fear no evil because God is with him. His rod and his staff comforts him. We need a shepherd. But often we hate the idea of having a shepherd. We love the idea, if we come face to face with our sin, we acknowledge the fact that we need a Savior, but we often reject the idea that we need a Lord. And so Jesus needs to be both our Savior and our Lord. But David here, in in asking God to teach him his way, he he demonstrates an obvious teachability that we often fail to do in our prayer. A lot of times we go to God and we say, here's what I want, here's what I need, here's what I need you to do for me. God, what have you done for me lately? What David is saying here is, teach me your way. Lead me in your path. And why does he say that? He says, because of my enemies. I'm in a tough spot, God, but, but let me follow you. And so we need to learn from this psalm and from every passage of Scripture, 
the need for prayer. You need to pray more. I need to pray more. I don't know anyone who thinks like, man, I've just, you know, I got room to grow in some areas, but I've just, I have no room to grow in prayer. We need to pray more. When we feel surrounded by whatever is threatening to bombard our lives, pray. When you feel abandoned by even those closest to you, pray. When you feel like you have adversaries, pray. When those uh, people are, are spouting lies against you, false witnesses, pray. When people breathe violence against you, pray. Fight fear through prayer. We need to pray without ceasing. And then finally, in our last two verses, we see David fight fear through patience. And we hate this one. I hate this one. Patience. Waiting. Waiting is hard. Waiting is frustrating. And waiting is agonizing when we're afraid. A lot of times we think of waiting in our life as something that's just completely useless. Right? We think of waiting for an appointment. That's just wasted time. We think of waiting in traffic. It's just wasted time. When the Bible talks about waiting, and when David exhorts in verse 14 for us to wait for the Lord, he's not saying just waste your time. Just kind of hope for the best. Waiting in the Bible is a very different thing. And David models it for himself, right? In verse 4, what's the one thing? If he could have anything in the world, right? If a genie said, what's your one wish? He's saying, the one thing I have asked of the Lord, that I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Then in verse 13, he has a confident hope. He says, I believe I shall look upon the goodness of Yahweh in the land of the living. He's trusting that, that the one thing he wants will be brought to fulfillment, but he has yet to realize it in in its entirety. And so he's modeling it first, and then he exhorts the reader, wait for Yahweh, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for Yahweh. David did all the right things, right? If you were kind of doing a checklist of like, how should you respond in times of fear, and you face this fearful situation, you're like, oh, good, had faith. Okay, check, did great. Uh, Oh, wow, he's worshiping. Check, that's good too. Oh, and man, he's praying too. What a guy. All right, he's doing amazing. You think if anyone deserves for that fear to go away, it would be him, or for him to get the one thing that he wants, he would get it. But David models here that that's not the way life usually goes. And that's something important for us to remember, that in times of fear, it's not a matter of just doing these even four things and just saying, well, if I do these four things, then tick, problem solved, my fear will go away. That's not the way life goes. But he models the importance of this fourth point, the need to wait for the Lord. Kids, you know what I'm talking about, the pain of waiting, right? If your mom or dad says, yeah, you can have a candy, but you just got to wait. You got to wait till maybe after the service, or you got to wait for whatever, you know? Okay, I'm seeing a couple head nods from the kids. You know what I'm talking about, the pain of waiting. And you know that, that they've told you to do that thing, but you know that it's as much as you want that thing, it's not going to be good in the long run if you try to bypass the waiting, if you try to skip 
the waiting, right? They have a good reason. You might not know the reason, but they have a good reason that you should wait for that candy. But adults, we understand the simplicity of that concept, yet we fall for that all the time. We fall for that all the time. We grab that candy the first chance we get. Right? Whenever we're afraid, we are tempted to bypass the waiting on our own volition. We fear failure, and so therefore, what do we do? We take shortcuts in our work. We bypass the waiting. We, we fear singleness, and so we, we run headlong into the wrong relationship that we shouldn't be in. We fear rejection, and so we compromise in order to please others. We grab the candy. We fail to wait. And we can look cover to cover through the Bible and see even heroes like Moses and Abraham and that their biggest blunders in their life is because they failed to wait. Waiting is a mysterious grace of God. And we are often called to wait. You look at the life of Joseph. His life looked a lot like Psalm 27. He know, knew what it was like to be surrounded by enemies. He knew what it was like to be betrayed even by his own family. He knew what it was like to be on the receiving end of false accusations. And yet it wasn't till the very end of his life where he was able to truly understand that what man meant for evil, God meant for good. And we see the same is true in Moses' life when he would eventually lead God's people out of slavery. We see that true in, in Abraham's life as, as he eventually gets the promised son that God promised would come. Dan and I, on Fridays, we read through the sermon manuscript and whoever's with me just pokes all the holes in it and tells me all the things that don't work. So if you ever don't like a sermon, you don't have to only blame it on me. You can blame it on multiple people. But this week, after we did the sermon uh, preview, Dan and I were looking through every, every story of the Bible we could think of, and we, we struggled to think of a story where waiting wasn't part of it. So challenge yourself to think through the stories of the Bible and consider how waiting plays a role in, I don't want to say every story, because I don't know, but almost every story. Waiting is a mysterious means of grace. And we see this true even in the way that God's people waited for their Messiah, the promised one who would come to save them from their sins. This is what we think of and we remember during this season of Advent, the coming of our Savior. And that for century after century after century, God's people waited in anticipation of the one who was promised. Promised all the way back, even when sin entered the world, that the seed of the woman, one would come who would crush the serpent, who would defeat sin and evil in an ultimate way. And as Sean read for us earlier in our assurance of forgiveness in Galatians 4, 4 to 7, it says, but when the fullness of time had come, a.k.a. when the waiting was over, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God's people throughout redemptive history waited for a savior to come. And that savior would come in Jesus 
When God knew the depravity of the world, he knew that only a sinless person could atone for the sins of the world, that no person who had lived could measure up to the standard to be the one who could bear the weight of God's just wrath against sin. And so God sent his own son to live a sinless life. And yet even in his sinlessness, to stand in the middle of an angry mob, to truly know and experience the feeling of innocence and being surrounded by those who wanted to devour him. And Jesus, when he died for your sin and mine, his head was brought low. So that in a remarkable way, as we read passages like Psalm 27 and we, t- we hear about our heads being lifted up above our enemies, that could be true because Jesus' head was brought low for our sake. And that we no longer have to offer in a tent or in a specific location sacrifices because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus substituted himself for all of us who would trust in Christ for salvation. And that he would be the shelter for us. In him we find refuge. Jesus was the light of the world. Jesus is our salvation. Because of what Jesus did in his righteousness, that is our stronghold. That is the hope of the gospel. But he died. And when he died for Sin, his followers and friends waited for three agonizing days wondering, what happened? I thought he was God. What, what's going on? They waited. And Jesus rose from the dead in victory. His followers found hope in times of fear in his glorious resurrection that not even death could hold down Jesus. And that's the same hope and truth that we have today to fight fear. Because of what Jesus did, we can have faith. We worship him. We can pray to him and through him. But now we wait with patience. Because our future is sure, but we wait until he returns when all our fears and tears and pain will be no more. We may not know why, but we fight fear by waiting. We fight fear by waiting, not wishful thinking, but sure hope. Right? David doesn't fill in these two exhortations in verse 14 between wait. He doesn't say, wait for Yahweh, hope for the best, wait for Yahweh. He says, Wait for Yahweh, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for Yahweh. The very fact that God's name, which again we talk about so often when we see the Lord through the Old Testament in all caps, that's God's personal covenant name, the name Yahweh. When we hear that name and see that name, that's why I say that name when I read it, is so that we can remember and acknowledge that God has made promises, God has kept promises, promises to redeem his people. So when we say, wait for Yahweh, that captures all of what God has done. That's how we can be strong. That's how we can let our heart take courage because we wait for, not just anybody, Yahweh, our Lord, our God. It's how our heart can take courage. And so the big idea from Psalm 27 is that we fight fear through faith, through worship, 
through prayer and through patience. We fight fear through faith, worship, prayer, and patience. David is no ignorant fool. David worships a faithful God. And we worship that same faithful God. That God who made a way for the most fearful thing in the world. Standing under his wrath because of our sin, that is the most fearful thing in the world, that it would be taken care of in full. It would be nailed to the cross. We worship a God who can do that and did do that. Whom then shall we fear? Let's pray. God, we are amazed that we can actually say those words. Whom then shall we fear? God, we can't do that on our own. We don't have the boldness. We don't have the bravery. We don't have the confidence. We don't have the integrity. We don't have anything to bring to the table apart from the declaration that our hope is found in Christ. God, we thank you that we have a sure confidence when we face times of fear. And God, we ask for your help as we wait for the day when Christ will return to take us home, when we will sin no more. But we wait with eager expectation, resting in our past hope, confident in our present, present security, and awaiting a glorious future that is only possible in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.